least, oh, hi. I was just testing you, Moro, on your first day. That was not very kind. Sorry about that. Well, welcome here. Uh, please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you are new here or visiting, uh, let me just tell you where we've been and what we're doing because this, this Sunday has been circled on the calendar for a long time. We've been going through this book of 1 Timothy over the last while. I don't even remember how long it's taken us. But what we know is that this book is written from Paul to Timothy and to the church in Ephesus. Is it broken again? I, I'm getting funny looks. Shay, do you want to come bend it right here in front of everyone? Is that better? Just crank it right up. Just, just crank it. That's as close as I can get it before I'm going to lick it. Um, so this book is written from Paul uh, to Timothy and the church in Ephesus, but commenters, uh, commentators talk about this as this mentoring manual, as this, this is how to disciple somebody effectively kind of a book. And that's what our church has been building towards uh, until this, this Sunday. This is kind of this pivotal moment is we're going to look here really quickly at, at the qualifications for overseers or elders and deacons. And we're going to explain that. But as we've been building to this, uh, the general board, so when you open the bulletin and you see all those names on the, uh, of the board members, every one of them has now been partnered with either somebody one-on-one -on -one or as a couple, uh, two people with two people. It's changing just depending on who we've uh, partnered people with. But the idea here is simple is discipleship is not complicated. We've complicated it. In our minds, we've made it something different than it is, and we've over-programmatized it, and it's become something you have to do this, and then this, and then this, and then this. All we're going to do, this is the goal, is we need to do two things to grow in our faith. We need to read Scripture, and we need to pray. Those are fundamental to the Christian faith. And so we've partnered uh, these board members with several other people in the congregation so that at least once a month, twice if possible, that they would connect with that person. So you may get a text or a phone call or an email, depending on how tech-savvy those board members are, and you'll connect with them, and they're just going to sit down with you. They're going to open the scriptures. And, and my recommendation, but this is just a recommendation, you can do whatever you want, but it's to look at Philippians and go one chapter at a time where you read together one chapter, you discuss it a little bit, you pray for one another, and then that's it. That's what discipleship looks like. It doesn't have to be this manual of you have to counsel them into this and make sure they're making all these good decisions. And Life is messy and full of difficulty. All we're trying to do is connect each other so that we intentionally read the Bible and pray together. So you can do that over coffee uh, in someone's home. You can do that at one of the coffee shops. You can do that, Ernie, this is for you on the golf course. You can do that wherever you want. There's, there's no constraints here. See, the biggest challenge that we have in Banff is schedules. And so we tried to like create these groups where we could have 10 or 12 or 15 people together, and it just doesn't work because nobody has the same schedules. And so what we've decided to do is this very kind of biblical idea of simply going, I'm going to be intentional, and I'm going to go approach somebody, and I'm going to ask, would they like to enter into a disciple relationship? And so Shayla and I, uh, along with some help from the board, have brought us to this place, and so if you would like to do that, if you see the value and the merit in that, then all you need to do is just email me or send me a text message or whatever you'd like and just say, yes, I, I want to be partnered with somebody. 
that is a little bit scary, I realize, because we have to be authentic and vulnerable and real, but that's what the church is called to be. And so that's what we're calling for you, and we're showing you that the leaders of our church, that they are going to model this for you, that, that it starts there. And so every single one of those board members are going to be in a mentoring relationship with somebody. And our goal by the end of 1 Timothy is that every single person who calls Banff Park Church their home would be connected with somebody. Because we just believe that's going to be the best and most effective way for us to grow in our spiritual walk. So that's led up to this point here. So the last couple of weeks uh, in chapter 2, Paul has been teaching uh, and writing to Timothy about what corporate worship is meant to look like. Uh, instructions for worship is some of the titles that you'll read. However, let me just say this. We're not talking about the order of service, right? We're not talking, okay, you, you get up and you sing a song and then Ernie comes and tells some almost inappropriate jokes and then we sing some, like, we're not talking about the, the structure of how that works. We're talking about the overall philosophy of how we do church and ministry together. And so Paul's done that, and he's talked about prayer. He's talked about scripture reading. And in fact, in 2 Timothy, he talks about that uh, a lot more. And and many of you know this verse in 2 Timothy 3.16. What does it say? All scripture is what? It's God-breathed. It's breathed up by God. It's useful for correcting and reproof and, and teaching and equipping. And in fact, that verse ends with that the man of God may be what? Equipped, lacking, nothing. So the word of God is sufficient for our growth. And so that's why we want to do this. That's why we want to sit down together with somebody and read scripture together. Because I could tell you all kinds of things, but they're just my opinion. But when we open scripture together and when we read scripture together, that's God's word breathed out through, in this case, the, the, the pen of Paul written not just to Timothy, not just to the church in Ephesus, but written to us that we know is his word and we know is fully true. <clears throat> so, this idea of prayer, of scripture reading. And then last week we looked at this idea of, of the creative order of Adam and Eve and how God has oriented uh, men with certain roles and women with certain roles. And he talked about certain issues that men face, uh, primarily anger and needing to deal with their own anger. And then dealing with women primarily with appearance and how their value can sometimes be put into their appearance. And, and, and Paul argues against that. And so we looked at the role of men in the home is to lead and to protect and to care for your wives and your children. That is your God-ordained role. And we can argue about equality, but there's nothing about equality in here. Everyone is created in the image of God, dearly loved by the creator of this world. Every one of us stand of equal value before him, not because of anything we've done, but because he has created us. So this isn't an issue of equality. It's simply an issue of this is what God's asked, that men would do this, that men would lead, that men would care for, protect, and nurture. And if you weren't here last Sunday and you want further proof of that, you can can go onto the website and just hear what we talked about, but I don't have time to get into that too much here. But suffice it to say that as we get to chapter 3, we're going to see that there's, there's two different groups of leaders within the church. And depending on your tradition that you've grown up in, and this is probably most difficult in Banff because we have so many people from all over the world, different cultures, different traditions, is we're going to look at what we think God has mapped out for us as the most biblical way to organize kind of the structure of the church. And that is with elders and then with deacons. However, we use in, in this passage, it says overseers and deacons. We use different terms. We use elders, and, uh, and I'm going to argue that we use a different term altogether that's a little bit more generic. But we'll get there in just a minute. 
So let me read these first 13 verses to you of 1 Timothy chapter 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul maps out here what this is going to look like. And part of what we're going to see, and, and I'm not going to flip there, but you can write these down, is in, in the book of Titus, and uh, Titus chapter 2 and 1 Peter chapter 5, we have this kind of written together. So Paul twice and then Peter once talks about these qualifications and how to appoint elders and who is qualified. And so this isn't just one text saying this is, this is clearly God's design written through Scripture about this. But when we read this, it can become... Well, it can become something where we read it and we go, well, I certainly don't qualify. Because there's a lot of stuff in there. And I'm going to explain a little bit of some of these specific things. Some of them are just more obvious than others. So right from the beginning, he says, this saying is trustworthy. Remember, there's, Paul says this several times through First Timothy. This is the second time. Back in uh, chapter 115, we see it for the first time. But he's, he's telling Timothy, he's saying basically this, pay attention. What I'm about to tell you, this is, this is worth listening to. This is crucial. This is important. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer. Now let me just clarify really quickly. Uh, this, this word overseer or elder or ruler or pastor or shepherd, all these words that you find in the New Testament, they're all interchangeable with the same root. So all these things mean the same thing. So in our tradition, uh, we refer to them as elders, but overseer is the same thing. So it says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. The first thing that you read there is that God actually is putting a calling on these men. They're aspiring to this. It's not that they want to do it for a pat on the back. And let me tell you, um, if you've ever served as an elder, it's awesome and it's incredibly hard. It's not always fun. There's difficulty, there's hurt, there's pain. Uh, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, there will be times where discipline is necessary and nobody likes that. And so being an elder is not something that is a, a flippant thing of going, man, I, want, I just want a lot of respect. If you want a lot of respect, there's plenty of better places to go find it. But if you want to follow after God and do what God's called you to do and not worry about the respect of man, and if you feel a calling on your life, to be part of the leadership of the church, then God has ordained that within you, that God has given you that desire. And so it's a good thing. He says it's a noble task. 
And then he gives us some qualifications. Right? So the first one is the hardest one. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. It's not really language that we use today. But so when we think about it, you have to be above reproach. Well, we sometimes interpret that as, uh, well, we can't do anything wrong. Well, then we're all disqualified. So it just can't be what it means. Right? Is, is the reality is, Romans 7, we're given this new nature from God. The Holy Spirit comes into us when we come to salvation and we're given a new nature, but that new nature and that old nature, that sin nature, they fight until the end of our lives. And then we will get freed from that when we go to be with Christ. So there's a battle that exists within it. Often, uh, often we don't respond the way that we know that we should. So it's not saying he has to be perfect. Rather, the explanation for this, so commentators say this, is that there must be no glaring errors in his life where people can see it. So maybe an easier way to say this is when somebody says, yeah, this person is an elder, people shouldn't be him? There should be, oh yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I see that. And it's not about being perfect, it's about being mature, and it's about desiring to put God first in their lives. So above reproach. And then you have this, the husband of one wife. And there's a lot of controversy about exactly what this means. Uh, I think sometimes we get a little too hung up, a little too caught up in this. What this really means, if you take the Greek and you translate it literally, it's a one-woman man. So there's two things Paul's doing here. One is a cultural thing that we don't really have to deal with. Is Paul's ruling out polygamists. He's saying, you've got to have one wife. You can't have many. Well, in our culture, we don't really have to deal with that one as much. So one man, one woman man, sorry. And then he's saying also that that man has to be faithful to his wife. So those are the two obvious, right? Shouldn't be a polygamist and can't be a cheater. Those are pretty obvious. Beyond that, this is where scholars kind of argue and they say, well, well, okay, first of all, does he, does he now have to be married because this qualification is in there? The husband of one wife, does he have to be married to serve as an elder? Well, just from a simple logical standpoint, that doesn't work because Paul was never married and Paul actually talked about that in a positive light for his ministry and, and for his missionary journeys is that it was helpful for him to only have to worry about himself and to go after what God had called him to and not have to take care of somebody else or be part of that. So I, I don't think that that works. Peter as well, though there is some belief that Peter was perhaps married and then his wife died, uh, that's really speculative. You'll not find that in Scripture, and there are some, some uh, traditions that, that teach that as kind of an important thing, and I just have this belief if it's important, God's going to tell us, and we don't have to really infer through what's not written. So there are people that believe, well, that if, if he was married but is no longer, then he's disqualified. Or if he was married um, and then divorced but then became a Christian later on and now we're many years past that, that then he's still not qualified. And I think all we're trying to do is we're trying to read in there to what the text is actually saying. I think it's just simply saying a man who is faithful to his wife if he is married. So that's one of the, the first and most kind of serious uh, things, the husband of one wife. And then he says sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. So those ones are kind of, again, obvious. But then it says in verse 3, not a drunkard. And I think it's interesting that he separated sober-minded from alcohol. Is There's two issues at play there. Is Just because we don't drink doesn't necessarily mean that we might be sober-minded. 
anything that consumes our thoughts, anything that consumes our direction, or that's where our focus is, anything that inebriates us off of Christ means that we're no longer sober-minded. We talked about this lots when we studied through 1 Peter a few months ago. I just think it's interesting that he puts those apart. But at the end of verse 2, you have the interesting one. And this is basically the only real glaring difference between overseer and deacon is able to teach. He must be able to teach. So, so what does that mean? Does that mean that any elder has to be willing to come and to preach a sermon in front of the, the congregation? Is that what it means to be able to teach? I think, again, we're being too narrow-minded when we think that way. Is able to teach means somebody that can handle the Word of God well, that knows it, that knows theology, that understands what God's called them to? Now, that, that doesn't mean they know everything, right? Nobody knows everything. But if you have a question and you go to one of your elders in the church and you say, man, you know what, I, I read this and, and I just don't know what to do with it. And if they, can, if they look at it and go, I, I just don't know either. And that's their continual answer every time you ask them a question. Then that's somebody who doesn't handle the word of God well. Now there's a lot of times I have to say, I don't know. Because there are difficult questions that I haven't always thought through. But then my responsibility is where else in scripture does this talk? And it's my responsibility then to go to scripture, to study it, and to bring back an answer. So that could be Bible studies. That could be leading the men's group. That could be Sunday school. That could be all kinds of different avenues. Able to teach simply means that they understand and can convey the word of God. Not violent. And this is an interesting one because this is the only one with a but after it. Not violent, but gentle. Again, I think this ties back to our previous text where it talks about how men deal mostly with anger. And anger can then cause us to act out in violence. And he's saying, you cannot be violent, you have to be gentle. And then he says it again here in this text. Not quarrelsome. Well, that's a good one too, is if your elders like look for controversy and look for a fight. Like, Have you ever had a conversation with somebody and you know they're just like poking you? just to see if they can get a response of you? Does that ever end well for anybody? It's not helpful and it's not conducive to proper study and, and growing together. All it is is it's someone just trying to rile you up. The scripture is saying an elder can't be that. And he cannot be a lover of money. Then we have a difficult one here. And this is one where a lot of misunderstanding comes as well. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. So I've had plenty of people who we've approached over the years in my ministry to say, like, like we think you fit this. And they'll go, well, no, I've got, I've got a rebellious kid. I've got a son who has not professed Christ. And again, I think we're making the text say something it doesn't because I cannot make anybody believe anything if they don't want to believe it. But my role as a father is to, is to parent my child so that he understands the scriptures, who God is, and what it means to be a godly man. And alternatively, if I have a daughter, what it means to be loved by a godly man and how to be a godly woman through scripture. And if I'm not doing that, then I'm disqualified. But because you have a child that's chosen a different path, no matter how much you have prayed for and cared for and nurtured and taught, that doesn't immediately disqualify you. Now, if there's a pattern and you have 17 kids in your, in your family and not one of them wants to follow Christ, there's probably a bigger issue at play. 
right? That's just the reality. But if you have a wild, disobedient child that you love unconditionally and you teach scripture to and you devote humility to, sometimes that's just what happens. And you can do everything right as a parent and still not always work out the way that you expect. And so parents, I just want to remind you of that, is is if you have a child that has walked away from faith or who has never professed Christ and and you pray for them daily and and you teach them scripture and you show them and and, and you were faithful to what you believe God called you to, rest in the fact that God loves them way more than you do and that God wants to bring them to salvation. And do everything that you can, but know that it is not your responsibility to make somebody become a Christian. It's your responsibility to model to the best of your ability, what it means to follow Christ. He says this, if if somebody does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So let me me say it this way. Matt Chandler said it this way. Is if a man man won't lay down his life for his wife and his kids, then he's certainly not going to lay down his life for the church. If he doesn't love his wife well, if he doesn't help her in her giftings, if he doesn't love his children and show them who Jesus is, then he is not the right man for this role. And I'm just going to say that's plain and simple. That's exactly right. Is if a man does not show that his wife and his family is most important and will protect them at all costs, then why would you want to put them in a position of leadership to care for an entire community of people? Lastly, he must not be a uh, recent convert or maybe become puffed up with conceit. This is really interesting to me. As I was studying this, I came across one commentator who just, he said it in just a beautiful way. And I'm going to paraphrase here because it's a really long quote. But basically he said this. Is to become a mature man of God really means that you have to understand how little you actually know and how little you are actually in control. And often the younger we are in our faith, the more naive we are and we think we know things that we don't actually know. And what God needs us to be aware of is how little we know, so how much we have to trust in him. And so the man who has all the answers is not the right person. I remember when I went to Bible college, and uh, this is funny, I have a a cousin here who grew up in the same avenue. Uh, uh, I thought I knew everything, right? Like I, that's super arrogant, I recognize that. But like I got into this first year class and you're like, you're like checking everybody out and kind of seeing like what denomination did they grow up and how much Bible did they know and when did they become a Christian? And I thought I was like, oh yeah, I've got this all figured out. And then the first class is introduction to theology, 305 fill in the blank theological definitions and I got 60 right. But I passed on a curve, that's the good news. And that whole class, the teacher literally looked at us and said, this is for all you Bible thumpers who think you know stuff, but don't. I needed to be humbled because in my own arrogance, it's like, yeah, I got this figured out. Like I grew up, my, my dad was a pastor. I grew up in the church. I know all these things. And then all you learn as you get older is there is so much more to the depth of our understanding of Scripture than we ever could have imagined. And if we think we know stuff, He's saying, you know what, can't be a recent convert because there's a lot of life experience and a lot of theological stuff that's got to happen in his life before he's ready to lead his congregation faithfully. That, and again, that doesn't mean that he's not a great man. It doesn't mean that he's not growing like crazy. It just means don't put someone into a position of leadership before they've been tested and before they're ready. Verse 8. 
now we look at this idea of deacons. So again, uh, deacons, uh, trustees, there's all kinds of different terms that we use uh, for this. And I think in our church, we actually use kind of several different ones because I would consider everyone who's on the general board who's not an elder would fit this. They're in leadership in various ways in the church doing various things. And so don't get too hung up on the title. So he says deacons likewise. And then he gives various examples of, of how to determine is this deacon, uh, is this deacon qualified for this role. And I just want to say this because this is oh, I'm all mixed up in my notes now. Here we go. To, to determine the difference between a deacon and an elder, because again, really the only thing that you see it in, in the qualifications is able to teach. But let me also say it this way, is when you look at that list of overseer, what's a skill set versus what's character? Able to teach is the only thing that's not character in that whole list. Everything else is about character, which is really Paul's way of saying your character is more important than where your skills are. That's far more important. But so here, we have a, just a very slightly different list, and Matt Moore uh, wrote it this way. He says this, An elder declares the gospel while a deacon demonstrates the gospel. And I thought that was a really good way of understanding that. Is the elder's role is to declare it. Teaching and shepherding is the primary role of an elder. And, and our goal here as we move forward, I speak on behalf of Lee and myself, the current elders, and, and hopefully you as a church know this, is we're looking for more men to step onto this role because we believe that, frankly, me and Lee are not capable of doing the job well enough. We need more. And our goal is that the elders, as this team grows and, and fleshes out a little bit, is that the, the shepherding and the teaching will be the primary responsibility of the elders. Now, on our general board structure, we will have an elder representative on that board, at least one, if not all of them, to provide some oversight and so that there's communication going back and forth all the time. But the primary goal of the elders, shepherding, teaching, the primary goal of the rest of the board or the deacons or whatever term you want to use is then the ongoing work of the church in service and facility. And there's different roles on the board for that. So again, the qualifications are very, very similar here. But the key role is that God has called them to serve. And depending on your tradition here, in between verses 8 and 13, it gets a little bit tricky with this idea of men and women because it sounds like from the beginning, deacons likewise, there's this role again, the husband of one wife. And it sounds like then deacons are only to be men, but there's, there's a scriptural innate contradiction here in that, in that in Romans 16, 1, we read, about this woman, Phoebe, who is the Greek word is diakonos, which is the same word that we translate as deacon, but it's the feminine version, so deaconess. So we see Phoebe is a deacon, deaconess. We see Priscilla is a deaconess. Actually, there's several others through the New Testament that are given this exact role. And so I think in this context, when, when you read verse 11, their wives likewise must. That word wives in the Greek is the same word for women generically as wives. And depending on the context, various translations translate it to either wives or women, depending on their interpretation and understanding of that. But even here in the ESV, where it says their wives, likewise, there's this little note down here. And then Ray Van Nest, who 
did the commentary on 1 Timothy, talks about this and says that women are not excluded from this role. He's simply pointing out that in that culture at that time that men were far more likely to cheat. They were far more likely to have more wives or to not be committed to their wife, whereas that qualification isn't given for women. That doesn't mean it's not true for women. It just means Paul was speaking of a very specific thing happening in that context. So men and women, I think in this context, are able to be a deacon, to serve in the church in those various roles. And we have that on our missions uh, board. We have two women on the board, actually, who, who share that role because it's, it's a fairly sizable role. Uh, our secretary is... Uh, a woman. There would be other areas we would be more than happy to allow women to serve in there because we believe the only thing, and again, this goes back to last week, the only role in the church that God has ordained for men is the role of elder and pastor. So that's where why we have structured it the way we have in our church. And just so you know, this long predates me. This is not my opinion. This is what our, our association, the Associated Gospel Churches of Canada, this is how we... Uh, how we interpret and how we hold to all of this. So God is calling both men and women in this to then practically demonstrate the gospel. So while there's the elder to shepherd and to teach, now there's the deacon and the deaconess who then are to go on to practically serve. But I think sometimes we then look at this and we go, okay, so there's this group and then there's this group, but I don't have to serve now because they are the servers. And all that is, is that's passing the buck. When we read in Scripture that there are evangelists and we go, well, I'm not really an evangelist. I don't have that gift. Could we imagine walking up to God and, and saying, you know, I never really shared my faith with somebody because that wasn't my gift. When God says, go into the world and make disciples to all of us. That's not just given to 12 men. That's a commission given to the church, to every single one of us. So we all are to serve. We are all to evangelize. We are all to disciple. That's just the reality of it. There are just simply some roles where the person serving is more in a prominent position because they're seen. And then there are loads of roles that are equally as important where you never actually see who does what and how it gets done. It's an interesting thing is if you want to learn, uh, come to the church on Tuesday morning. Because Deb's in the office more than I am. Because there's loads of things that she does that are not on my plate for responsibility that you will never know that she does and that others do in the church. Because they're serving countless hours where they go, this is what God has called me to do. I need to be obedient and I want to serve and I want to serve well. Sometimes their names are in the bulletin. Sometimes they'll be up here, like, like Ernie, giving an announcement. And sometimes they'll be doing things that we never even see happen, but without those things happening, everything would be a gong show. So it's not an excuse to not serve. What it is saying is those that are going to step out, those that are going to lead uh, the deacon ministry from the front, that they need to represent the church, they need to represent God well. So again, none of this stuff is about being perfect. What it is, is about maturity. And this is why we've decided that the leadership of the church, that the board, are going to start discipling people to model what we say we believe as important. We keep saying over and over, the Great Commission was given to all of us to go and to make disciples. You do not make disciples by accident. You do not make disciples unintentionally. You make disciples because you're obedient to what God's called you to do. 
Sometimes that maybe means sharing your faith very directly. Sometimes that may mean serving and caring for in very practical ways, and maybe a word isn't even spoken. But we are called to do that, and we cannot do that isolated and alone, at least not the way that God has intended us to do it. So regardless of whatever tradition uh, you're from, whether there's elders or whether it was deacons or whether there was all kinds of other scenarios, and there's many, many different options on the table, what I'm just suggesting is I think Paul's telling us this is the way in which the church should structure itself so that there are a group of men that shepherd and teach and take their role from God seriously. And then all the others who are going to serve in positions where they're seeing that they need to represent the church and they need to represent Christ well, and so they need to be mature and they need to be these lists, the various things that we have. Because if they're not that, they're not going to do that job well. I just think it's that simple. And then for the rest, for everyone else who is a part of the church, who is, and, and let me just say it this way, is if you have proclaimed Christ as your Savior, then whether you attend a local church or not, you are part of the church, God's kingdom. And if you're part of God's kingdom, I would argue very strongly that church is an essential part of that. And so wherever your local church is, you are called to serve and to care for and to nurture people regardless of where you're at on your journey. So this is just my simple challenge to you this morning. Is if you've been part of Banff Park Church for a little while and you're not involved in some area, I just want you to consider, who am I? How has God geared me? What are my skills? What are my abilities? How can I use those for the glory of Christ? Because simply put, we can serve anywhere and do anything because it's not about us, it's about him. So we can let go of our insecurity, we can let go of our pride, we can let go of whatever else it is that's holding us back, and we can say, God, I'm going to serve you because you are the point of everything. So consider that in these coming days. How can you be involved so that our church can grow? And I don't just mean, I don't just mean in a numerical sense so that we can have uh, more chairs filled or our finances can be stronger, any of those things. I just mean from a simple stance of that people are coming to faith and people are growing in their faith so that tomorrow they're more like Christ than they were today. Let's pray. God, you have called every single one of us. Every single one who declares Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you have called to go and make disciples. And so God, in whatever context that looks like, we pray that you would give us the courage and the willingness to step out and do that. God, thank you for the leadership in this church and the godly men and women that are taking their roles so seriously. God, would you continue to mature them, continue to equip them and help them to grow in their own faith, and and as they grow, that they would drag others along with them in that. God, thank you for their willingness to be intentionally partnered with someone who they can disciple. God, would you give us wisdom with how to do that? Would we not turn it into some crazy program, but would we just turn it into a very organic thing of living life together, talking about 
spiritual things together, reading scripture and praying together. God, you have chosen in scripture that the church would be your instrument to change the world. And so God, would each one of us consider how we can have a part in that role? God, we want this church, we want Banff Park Church to grow so that your kingdom grows. God, we want to change this community of Banff. God, there are so many people that come every single day, every single week that do not know you. God, would we be a church willing to love and to care for and to reach out into this community so that we can transform it for your name's sake. God, you alone are worthy. Would you give us the courage to step out and to do the things that you have called us to do? And God, I pray for the leadership of this church, that you would continue to be at work in them, give them humble hearts, and give them a desire to do what you have called them to do. God, thank you for each one who is serving in this church and for those who maybe this morning are feeling like their role of service, maybe because it isn't seen, isn't valuable, would you help them to understand just how crucial it is? God, thank you for every single one who serves. Would you bless them? Would you give them encouragement as they seek to honor you? God, we love you, and as we go from this place today, We just declare that you alone are worth serving. God, we're so thankful that we get to be part of your kingdom, part of your family. Go with us this week. Amen.